coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Starting Monday, more can sign up for COVID-19 vaccinations in Ontario. One of the two Michaels has been to trial in China without a verdict. Are you feeling politically homeless? Many Canadians are. It's coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. The USA is sending us their surplus COVID-19 vaccine when they have enough. So we can go to Disney World! When they let us in. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Yeah, that's what it's all about at Disney World. Look, we get those borders open so we get the Canadians down to Disney World. Got to get the snowbirds vaccinated. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station. Keeping the Scott Thompson home show on the air as we wind up week number 53. There you go. Golf clap. One-sided. All right. A little earlier on today, uh, Premier Doug Ford uh, held a news conference in which he talked about how they are ahead of schedule and uh, some new information on opening up and, and dropping the age of those that uh, can sign up for vaccination. Here's a little bit of what he had to say this morning. Because of this progress, I can now say we're ready to take the next step in our vaccine rollout, and we're able to do so ahead of schedule. Starting this Monday, Monday, March the 22nd, we will accept appointments for residents 75 years of age and older. This is an incredible achievement. It shows what we can do when we unleash the full power of Team Ontario. Effective Monday, pharmacies and primary care settings can begin booking appointments for individuals age 60 and over. As they do, they will honour all appointments currently booked. But we won't stop there, and we can't stop there. We want more pharmacies. We want mass immunization sites running at their full potential. We want as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible. All right, that is Premier Doug Ford uh, earlier this morning uh, talking about uh, pharmacies now getting more involved uh, with every uh, passing week. Should have 700 in the next two weeks. Uh, they will continue what they were doing with the 60, uh, the 64s uh, with the AstraZeneca, uh, but now it will just, because it's been uh, approved uh, all the way across the board, 60-plus, uh, you can in those pharmacies, uh, and you can get those locations on the website, 60-plus start booking uh, for AstraZeneca. That's on Monday as well, 75-plus through the uh, portal as well, 75-plus uh, starting on Monday. So, uh, that is uh, what is happening uh, as of this morning. Obviously, good news uh, with regard to the U.S. Uh, saying that uh, they're uh, going to have a surplus soon as they finish vaccinating uh, their citizens. Uh, and, uh, of course, we are getting 1.5 million doses of the AstraZeneca from them. Uh, it's sitting in warehouses down there uh, because it hasn't been approved yet down there because they simply haven't needed it. Uh, so, uh, obviously, uh, we're going to get that, and uh, and this is a loan. It's, it's interesting. People, are, they're sharing. They're not sharing. They're loaning it to us. 
and 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 either that or you're buying it. So uh, it, you know, it, it's it's it amazes me how people just think that they're going to look after us before they look after their own citizens. I'm, I'm just astounded by that. Uh, anyway, so uh, but that we really don't have a, a firm date on that at this point, and it looks like it's probably around June. Uh, by the time we will start to see that AstraZeneca come in uh, from the United States. So some changes, uh, obviously, in the last 24 hours, uh, and certainly coming up Monday in Ontario when 75-plus, uh, uh, they start taking, and they, and they stress, please do not use the website until Monday for 75-plus. Uh, it is 80 right now, so again, don't overload the system if it's not your age group. That starts on Monday, as well as 60-plus. Uh, can book uh, for the AstraZeneca at the participating pharmacies, and that is expanding in the next couple of weeks to include over 700. This obviously all reliant on a steady stream of vaccination continue to come in. Let's bring in Thomas Tenkate, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University, is with us. Now, Thomas, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, yes, thanks, Scott. It's great to be with you. Thank you very much. So first, let's start off with the news that came out late yesterday that uh, that uh, uh, Biden has said that the surplus, uh, once they hit the surplus, which is, I guess, coming soon, uh, they will then start uh, distributing AstraZeneca to both Mexico and Canada. Your thoughts on all of this? Yeah, well, definitely that's a you know, great news for, uh, for Canada. And, you know, I think, you know, Whatever supply we can get, we've we've got to try and get our hands on. And so, so getting you know, and obviously the U.S. is the uh, you know the closest country to us, uh, and you know they they definitely have have supplies there. You know, one of the things I was thinking about, uh, you know, you were sort of mentioning something there before, and and it sort of goes along with this is that it may not be as sort of uh, magnanimous as people might think, mainly from the perspective that uh, these vaccines, the, the AstraZeneca vaccine, has a relatively short expiry date and so like under a month and so so there's only so long it can stay in the stay you know in storage in the factory before it uh before it goes off so so if they've got if they've got millions of doses sitting there you know they're not going to be much good for anyone uh you know with you know within a short period of time so so instead of uh you know maybe there's some you know pressure from the company saying We'll lose a lot of money if we don't get this stuff out the door. So can we get it out the door quickly? And you know, the people who want it, and then you know, they'll be you know paying for it anyway, or you know, paying us back anyway. So, so you know, I don't know. I'm maybe you know, maybe I'm a bit cynical, but but there there, there could be something to that as well. So it's less about generosity and sharing, which let's be honest, this is a global pandemic, and more about uh, uh, the product itself and its expiry date. Well, yeah, I, I sort of, I, I, I just question that. I, I wonder if there's something to that because the the AstraZeneca, uh, both the AstraZeneca and the the Johnson and Johnson uh, uh, vaccines are different to the other two. Be, be, these two uh, have uh, what are called a vector virus as as the sort of delivery system, and yeah. they're also the two vaccines that that uh, have you know sort of storage that is. That is in the uh, you know sort of the two two degrees to eight degrees range, so it's so refrigeration, whereas the other ones are the really cold storage, like minus twenty five, minus seventy degrees. So the other ones can be frozen uh, for like six months, and you, you know before and uh, or more, you know. And whereas these ones, uh, just like any food in your fr- refrigerator, you know the food in the refrigerator will go off, uh, 
the, these ones, you know, are in the same same boat that you know the AstraZeneca is is expires about a, a month or so, uh, and the Johnson Johnson is about three months. So so there, there is a there is that sort of reality of uh, you know there's only so long that these these are viable for, and uh, you know I you know that could that that could be you know one one piece playing into this uh, into this decision, but but obviously you know. If if that is a you know something you know why why not uh, you know we should be why not take advantage of it from from our perspective. sure um, it um, it also has not been approved in the U S although they figure it will be by the uh, by the end of April uh, I was talking to someone at uh, Texas State University and, and asked them why it had not been approved already and they said it's just it's not needed simply because they have so much of the other three. Uh, that that it, you know it, it's not essential to them, and as this stuff is waiting approval, it's being produced and, and stored in a warehouse, as you mentioned. Um, if this is ready to expire and they're not at an approval situation yet, they get this out the door. And again, this isn't sharing; this is a loan, so it has to be replaced. So basically, they give us something that uh, they're not going to be able to use; they won't be ready for, and it goes to us. We in turn replace it with something with probably a longer shelf life that they will be able to use, or even give yeah. to someone else. Yeah, you know, I you know, I just sort of wonder if that's you know, yeah. you know, the the situation, particularly. You know, my sense is that you know the the company you know AstraZeneca there it would have expected that the approval would have been faster and uh, you know and so they they were so you know producing the you know the vaccines you know in 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 uh, anticipation of being able to get it out the door and and if it's just sitting there you know there, there's not much they can do with it until it's approved so so why not sort of uh, get it get it to a country that uh, that that has approved it yeah. Um, it was interesting um, because I, I heard a reporter yesterday uh, on the news say U.S. the U.S. is finally sharing its vaccine, which I, I just found odd. Why is it that Canadians or and, and I, you know I can only speak to, to to this country feel that it's up to others to look after us before they look after? their own citizens. I mean, everybody wants to help as soon as they can, but, you know, it, it seems odd that uh, that they're bad until they give us some. And yet we're hearing in Europe how they're just absolutely flabbergasted that they're seeing, they're, you know, they're seeing sort of the Wild West go on, this stuff getting sold to the highest bidder. They're seeing vaccination going out of Europe to other countries. There is a, a situation with the EU the other day. They said, as soon as, can, as soon as other countries that we're selling this stuff to start passing us, I mean, that's going to be a problem. So uh, are we just expecting everyone to help us? And again, everybody will when they can, but it just seems odd. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I suppose it's definitely that sort of supply and demand issue, demand uh, uh, issue, and and ultimately, you know, you know, just like with climate change and a lot of other other uh, issues, you know, they become more political than yeah. you know scientific and and or health related, and and I think this is a classic example of uh, you know that this, you know all of this plays into you know politics and. And ultimately, politicians, uh, you know, are uh, get in, get you know, voted on by their own citizens, not by people in other countries. So they've right. really got to look after our, their own countries to start with. I think, you know, and 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 we you know, we can't sort of, you know, we can't sort of criticise them for that. But but obviously, you know, we also have to say, 
will have to consider, yes, it is a global pandemic and the pandemic itself won't be controlled until it's controlled across the world. And whereas, you know, countries, countries such as India and, uh, you know, and through a number of the, uh, you know, uh, South Asian countries, they, and, and through Africa, they're, they're really the countries where, where, you know, the vaccine really needs to get to. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so new information coming out today at the Premier's uh, news conference this morning. They're going to start uh, through their uh, portal website. 75-plus uh, can start booking on Monday. And then through the pharmacies that are were part of the pilot program that were uh, injecting the AstraZeneca to those that are 60 to 64, and now obviously all of that's been cleared, they're going to start expanding those. So those particular pharmacists that are participating, and, and again, they're saying 700 in a couple of weeks, uh, they'll start doing 60-plus. Your thoughts on where we are? Uh, yeah, well, definitely, you know, this is a really good uh, development. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the more, you know, whatever, whatever we can do to get uh, more people uh, vaccinated uh, as quickly as possible, the better. And and I think, you know, the the options of the AstraZeneca and the Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccines, because they, and particularly the Johnson & Johnson, because it's just a single-dose vaccine, uh, but they give a lot more options, particularly for you know, pharmacies and other other uh, uh, op- uh, other places to be able to deliver this. And, and so, because of that uh, aspect of only needing just you know regular refrigeration, so so I think uh, expanding expanding those sorts of standards, particularly because you know they're also for most people easier to access uh, and you know they're local, then that's really where I think we'll get the uh, most value for for uh, or the you know the, the leaps ahead in regard to uh, vaccinating people is is through those sort of uh, smaller localized centres uh, versus in essence the larger larger places you know so so I think that's a, that's a really it's you know it's it's all positive signs from that perspective. Thomas, what are your thoughts? Uh, as we mentioned, uh, starting Monday, uh, 60 and over can start booking through those uh, participating pharmacies. Um, but we have heard some hesitancy from those 60 plus about AstraZeneca and just the situation it's been through with the conflicting information uh, from the two agencies, uh, federal agencies on whether it's safe for those 65 plus or not. Not safe, that's inaccurate. Whether it was effective uh, 65 plus, it's always been determined safe. Now, of course, the situation or then the situation with the European countries that had paused it, we should also say further investigation had been done there, has been done, and uh, they are slowly reversing all of that and again declaring uh, the drug safe. So what are your thoughts on uh, the AstraZeneca and, and again, some hesitancy in the 60 plus to to sign up for that yeah i i you know i definitely understand you know people being a little bit sort of cautious about this uh i i think you know we're we're really in a sort of a global sort of uh testing situation in regard to you know we're it's a global experiment with uh with giving so many people uh sort of vaccines so quickly and and uh and so it means that we we are going to have you know ongoing sort of uh, reports on you know you know some adverse effects and and you know sort of questions on uh, viability and a range of things but but I think you know that the, the the consistent sort of message and the evidence is that uh, the vaccines uh, are, are safe and they are are, uh, are effective for for across the board 
Uh, and you know, if if you also, you know, one of the things that's interesting is that uh, for the vaccines for for older people, uh, that they tend to have less less side effects or, or less adverse effects than than people who are younger. So so that's actually an interesting thing. So so if, so I don't I don't think people should be concerned about uh, if if they're in the sixty plus age group in in regard to take you know being vaccinated and uh, you know and the evidence so far is that that their their level of uh, sort of the uh, adverse effects that you can have with vaccines are, are much less than than uh, than young younger people and and across the board the uh, the adverse effects are, are very very minimal in comparison to the number of people people vaccinated so so overall that you know the the benefits far outweigh the uh, potential downsides Thomas Tenkate with us, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University. Thomas, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Yeah, thanks very much, Scott. Have a great day. I appreciate it. Thank you. Enough of the guests. Now it's time for my opinion. Here's the commentary. As I predicted weeks ago, it would not be Justin Trudeau's giant portfolio that gets us out of pandemic hell. It will be other countries finishing up vaccinating their own citizens, then fulfilling our contracts and sending us their extras. And that is exactly what the United States of America has promised Canada when they're done. 1.5 million AstraZeneca doses will then arrive in Canada on loan. They have to be replaced when we catch up. The U.S. has been producing the stockpiled AstraZeneca vaccine, which will be approved in the United States in April. It has not been approved already because they won't need it to meet their goals of having all Americans enjoying a family vaccination barbecue for the 4th of July. Imagine that. Once the U.S. hits a surplus, the vaccine will flow. Why we expect others to look after us before they look after their own citizens is beyond me. Is that what Canada has become? A country of smug socialist handouts? No one is left behind because no one gets ahead to help anyone. We're 57th, standing in line with our handout hoping someone will look after us. And a prime minister who is more interested in saving the planet than he is us. Thankfully, the Americans will come through for us again. I'm Scott Thompson. God bless America. They're coming to our rescue. Thank God. I've been bugging Trump. I've been bugging Biden, all of them. They must get sick of Doug Ford asking for help. But our, our greatest uh, partner, our greatest trading partner, our greatest friend in the world, uh, President Biden, thank you. And once I get him, I will call you the champion. But I need to get the delivery first. So, so thank you. Uh, Premier Doug Ford, uh, yesterday's news conference, uh, hearing that uh, President Biden uh, has uh, decided their surplus AstraZeneca vaccine, uh, which they'll have surplus of, I guess, by the end of the month, will start to uh, be distributed to Mexico and Canada. I think they're talking about June, it getting here. Uh, let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Thanks for your time, Michael. Your thoughts on uh, this new established uh, relationship between Canada and the United States? Well, we've had one historically, so let's let's put that aside. But yeah, no, I think it's actually a good thing. I don't think we should be unhappy in the slightest. And I know some people are saying, well, it makes Canada look weak, and the fact that we've had enormous amounts of trouble in terms of our vaccination program, which is now ranked about 65th in the world in terms of basically getting it out on a per-person basis. We know that the rollout's been disastrous. And aside from some of the commentary, 
we really know that the major issue has been the federal government because they're the ones who purchase the vaccines. They're the ones who distribute the vaccines to give to the provinces who then move it down to the cities, towns, villages, etc. Everyone obviously has to slightly raise their hands and share blame because you can't completely avoid it, but it's mostly towards Ottawa. However, whatever happened here and the fact that an arrangement has been made is a good thing. And whether Ontario Premier Doug Ford was behind it, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, or, you know, my Aunt Sally, it doesn't make a difference. At least we're getting more vaccines in. It will take some time, but we will get it. And the fact that it really is a remainder, it's something to remember, especially as time goes along and when people are starting to think about different sorts of issues or election campaigns whenever they happen and so forth. But for right now, the quest is to get as many Canadians vaccinated as quickly as possible so we can start back on the road to a new normal or a sense of normalcy, you know, whatever you wish to say. So I think all of this is a positive note. Um, your thoughts, uh, you know, I was watching uh, a, a TV news sh- uh, coverage last night and the reporter said, uh, finally, the United States is sharing. And it just made me feel so awkward because it seems as if we've become a country that expects others to help us instead of their own citizens first. And, you know, we all contribute to, to the COVAX system, which Canada is going to get some from. Uh, and America has, I think there's like five to, to seven million of the AZ that they're going to distribute, and there's only a portion of it for Mexico and Canada. And then, of course, Correct. they will dole the rest of it out. But yeah. it's as if now we've, you know, we've become this socialist country that just stands there with our hands out and says, me? because we don't produce it. I mean, I can totally understand underprivileged countries who are not in our position, but this is our mistake here. And, and again, it's, it's, it's as if it's the other people's fault, big bad America, who have just saved us, by the way. Uh, you know, uh, they're not sharing. Yeah, well, I mean, look, there, there, well, there is a socialistic nature to Canada, and there's no point denying it. We know it exists from our healthcare system on. We've always had that. But aside from that, you know, I agree with you in the sense that we shouldn't want to expect other countries to share, so to speak. And even Ontario Premier Doug Ford, when he was praising Joe Biden, said he understood why Americans would want to vaccinate their people first, and he would do the same thing, as all of us would. That's what the primary goal should be, is to vaccinate your own country first, and then, if there are remainders, help out others who are sort of lagging behind for whatever reason. But yeah, I agree with you that Canada shouldn't obviously assume that when their hand is being held out, that it should be filled and that they should get something. And that we should be irritated at the United States for actually thinking about their own nation first and their own residents first before us and everybody else in the world. I mean, again, it's human nature and that's just the way it operates. And I agree with you that, you know, if, if that's the way Canada wants to press forward, and that's not just necessarily due to the current government in Ottawa, but just as sort of a way or thinking uh, that we now currently have, if this is what Canada is going to be in the 21st century, that's pretty disappointing. And, you know, I mean, the prime minister has always been truthful in the fact that he has said this will all happen by September. We have a giant portfolio. But I think what he failed to explain, we all thought this would be consistent, a consistent gradual uptick. What he failed to mention, I think, is that that portfolio will not be fulfilled until these individual countries fulfill their own needs. Yep, exactly. Look, I and others have said that 
you know, it's fine if everything gets finished in September or October or whenever, as he sort of touted, but it could have been done quicker if there hadn't been these patches where we struggled to get Pfizer, Moderna properly. I mean, we're even now having some issues. You probably saw some of the drug loads going to be sort of gone in the next week or so and then have to pick up again. We're just losing um, certain, you know, we, we would certainly hope that there would be a consistent flow of the vaccines coming in. You know, it could be a little sporadic here and there, but there have been periods where just the highs and lows have been so wild in terms of how much we've received, not only in Ontario, but through the rest of the country. It just doesn't give you a lot of it doesn't give you a lot of confidence in the way things are being managed or run. And I think that's the part that really drives me nuts the most. It doesn't matter if we finish on time. And certainly the federal liberals and our prime minister will obviously be standing on their pedestal overjoyed and saying, look, everything worked out. There were a lot of people who got sick and a few people who died because of those breaks in terms of Pfizer and Moderna, the two vaccines that, you know, that are supposed to be coming in on a fairly regular basis to Canada and other parts of the world. And you can't ignore that because if it had been consistent, not only would we have finished earlier, but more people would have been, or, or let's put it this way, there would have been a, a certain proportion of people who would have survived this thing that otherwise, you know, based on these lags, they got caught in a terrible part of the process. And there's no nice way to say it other than that. It's interesting because I remember, and I may have even said this to you, watching U.S. news coverage of all of this and thinking, man, these people are six months behind us watching what's happening there. Now it's the other way around. It's bizarre yeah. how it has pivoted. Uh, Michael Tobe with us, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, have a great weekend. Thanks so much. You too. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the most senior female officers in the Canadian Forces is breaking her silence on her discussion to resign from her post, uh, discussed by allegations of sexual misconduct among the military's most senior ranks. An exclusive interview with Global News' Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson, Lieutenant Colonel Eleanor Taylor, describes her decision to quit the Canadian Forces. She says she's deeply frustrated by what she sees as the military's failures to root out sexual misconduct. I was hearing this undercurrent and, and feeling this undercurrent of seething rage from within the women and other victims in the organization. For people who live in this organization, this type of behavior is no surprise. I do not think that the military can fix this on its own. We need to leverage experts from outside uh, our organization. We have demonstrated quite resoundingly that we cannot fix this on our own. Let's bring in Christian Leprecht, uh, professor at the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute and is with us now. Christian, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Good afternoon, Scott. Indeed, I am. Uh, your thoughts on what we have been just hearing? Yeah, I think you can see the the seething discouragement in her voice, right? So I think why Lieutenant Colonel Taylor is being taken so seriously, not that other people aren't, but um, there's a pecking order within, sort of sometimes perceived within the officer ranks. And infantry is often considered to be among sort of the, the toughest gigs that you can get as an officer in the military. So this is somebody who... Um, who, who has achieved uh, as a female member 
one of sort of the, the highest ranks of somebody who is operationally on the front lines doing sort of uh, doing all the things that uh, that a military officer could possibly be asked to do in terms of the toughest sort of decisions out there. And so uh, I think her voice carries within the organization disproportionate weight and disproportionate respect in terms of um, uh, the, the, the particular achievement that she has, not to in any way suggest that other uh, ranking female members have not had similarly um, uh, exceptional achievements. But I think this is why her voice is making such waves, because so many people really look up to her and her accomplishments, uh, her command experience. Um, and so I think this, there's, um, uh, I, think, I think she felt an obligation to express what many around her are either too fearful to express uh, for um, repercussions for their own career, or as we recently heard from Lieutenant General Christine Whitecross, who recently retired, where she said, I wish I had come out earlier and be more explicit about my misgivings and my frustrations. Um, and so I think there's, there's a bit of a feeling here that somebody needed to fall on their sword. Um, and uh, mm. this is what Lieutenant Colonel Taylor is doing in some ways. Uh, like you said, I mean, not new allegations here. Uh, th- this has been, we've heard of this before. Will this falling on the sword, as you say, will this uh, change things? And can the military, is the military the one to fix this? So if you listen to her words, it clearly shows she's very informed on the file because of the, the clips of that we, um, uh, that's, that, that, that we heard that's been circulated is very much that the military cannot fix this on its own. And of course, so far since 2015, it has been all about the military fixing this issue on its own. There has been relatively little consultation with outside stakeholders, and it has been very much fixed in a military logic, in an operational logic. And what we see in Ottawa these days, the reporting on the ombudsman, the minister, and the chief defense staff is two different logics that are in conflict with one another. The uniform and the military's operational logic and the institutional logic of the civilian part of the department, uh, of the minister, um, of the defense committee, and the broader sort of expectations that Canadians have. And so I think what she's articulating is that the paradigm that the military has been applying for six years to resolve this issue is the wrong paradigm, and we can see the effects because it is not achieving the outputs and the outcomes that both the public and especially the members who are serving in the institution and who are the most subject um, to these issues have been expecting. So how do you fix this? Is it different this time because of the personnel that have fallen on the sword? So I think there's two key issues to this. Of course, one of the things that's been circulated is we need to get an inspector general. Yes, they can have a broader remit. Um, they can be more proactive in looking at different units. But it is, it is still sort of ultimately a reactive mechanism where they have to discover challenges and then go in and try to fix them. I think there's a couple of dimensions to this that are critical. One is that the military has to go outside to outside stakeholders. It's a little bit like a fish looking for water. 
you don't realize the, that you're actually swimming in water until you're taken out of that water and you realize, oh, this is what air looks like. It's killing me. So uh, I think making the fish aware of the water that they're swimming in, and there's a nice quote from a senior female ranking officer who was sort of in a conversation when challenged and said, you know, what's all this concern about gender? The military is gender neutral. And her reply was, no, the military is gender blind. So these are cultural issues that need to be resolved. The other is that I think... Our Westminster system of government is based on the premise of responsible government as our fundamental constitutional principle and ministerial responsibility. And there needs to be more explicit and clear direction from the minister on resolving these issues. We've had similar issues, cultural institutional issues, three times in Canadian history before. After World War II, when Brooks Claxton, then Minister of Defense, made a very active intervention during reunification of the department in the 1960s, and Minister Hellier, where the three services, the three environments, resisted tooth and nail. And, of course, as you will remember, Scott, um, in the 1990s, after the Somali Inquiry, when Minister Doug Young put out his report with 12 points um, and put in place a minister's monitoring committee to ensure that the military would implement and the committee reported back to the minister every three months. And I think what we need here is clear direction and action from the minister about what is going to happen and how it is going to happen. The minister has not done that because ministers are loath to compromise the professional autonomy of institutions such as the military. But in this particular case, subjective control, that is to say control by the civilian authority, is absolutely called for. This is what Lieutenant Colonel Taylor is calling for, that the people in uniform cannot be left to manage this file. They have shown that they can't manage this file. And so ultimately, then, who is responsible? That's, of course, the debate before the, Department, the Committee on National Defense, the, standing, the House of Commons Standing Committee on National Defense. What is the minister's responsibility? And the frustration, I think, both with uniformed members and with at least some members in Parliament, that the minister needs to take greater responsibility and direct responsibility for this file. Uh, ironic, I'm watching the news last night and a commercial comes on for the Canadian military, all you can be, that sort of thing. And very prominently in the commercial are women. So, you know, what does this do to the branding? Obviously, they're, they're trying to brand this differently, but the, the problems go to the core. What does this do for those who are thinking about this as a career or recruitment? Look, troubled institutions are full of great people. And I think the military, by and large, is full of fantastic and great people. But there are, continue to be too many individuals that either engage in conduct that is simply not acceptable or that in the past have done so. And I think the frustration by serving members is have not been called out for it. And what do you get for it? You get a promotion and you get, a, you get another sort of maple leaf on your, on your shoulder. There is clear, massive reputational risk to the organization. I would say that this file, and this is why it requires the minister's leadership, this is an existential threat to the organization. If this cannot be addressed and cannot be fixed, look, the demographic growth in Canada is not white, young, rural men where the military has traditionally over-recruited. Uh, over it is among uh, urban, um, ethno-demographically diverse populations, 
Um, and the opportunity here to branch out to underrepresented groups in the military, notably women and indigenous peoples. And so when people watch what is going on, this is not going to be a particular incentive if you're from one of these groups that has traditionally been underrepresented to sign up. And so this is why um, it is absolutely imperative that failure is not an option. And I think what Lieutenant Colonel uh, Taylor here is saying that the military has failed on this file, and it cannot fix it. So we need a different approach to reassure Canadians who are watching these commercials that these commercials actually reflect the integrity of the organization and the commitment by the organization to fundamental change. Women in military feeling seething undercurrent of rage over allegations, says a senior female military officer, Lieutenant Colonel Taylor. Christian Leprec with us, professor at the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Christian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. It's been my real pleasure, Scott. Thank you. We have just uh, heard, of course, and, and as you know, that uh, the two Michaels trials, uh, one today, one on Monday, Michael Spy- uh, Spaver's trial uh, was today. It ended without a verdict. And, uh, of course, uh, Michael Kovrigs will be coming up on Monday. And uh, we've certainly talked about uh, how these usually play out and, and a 99% uh, conviction rate and such. Uh, here's, a, I'm sure, a very person, to, a very busy person today talking about this. Charles Burton, senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad, uh, McDonald Laurier Institute. Charles, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Good to speak with you, Scott. Nice day so, here in St. Catharines. Yeah, it's beautiful, isn't it? Nice heading into a weekend. So, unfortunately, the two Michaels, uh, where they are, the lights are on all of the time. Uh, now we have a trial. What can you tell us? What do we know about what happened today? Well, you know, nothing much really happened in the sense that Mr. Favor was brought out, um, put in a courtroom uh, with no media or public present, um, sat there for two hours. Um, God knows what they were saying, um, but, you know, I think one of the reasons that, that they won't allow any observers it's not really because of their excuse that it impinges on matters of national security, but just because it's a sham and uh, they wouldn't like us to be looking too closely into it. Um, there was no verdict, but, you know, I'd be extremely surprised if we don't get a verdict of guilty um, coming up sometime soon. And then, uh, Lord knows when they hand down the sentence, you know, it could be in days, or in the case of Kevin Garrett, the Canadian that was um, also held in the same prison where Mr. Savers being held up in the Chinese Northeast in Dandong, uh, five months later, they handed down a sentence of eight years, and then two days later, they put him on a plane back to Canada. Hmm. So, you know, we, there are just an awful lot of unknowns here, but it's essentially a non-event. I mean, Spaver remains in Chinese prison hell as he has for over 820 days. And there's uh, so far no indication that anything's going to change. What about the language barrier here? I mean, do they understand the language? Is there translation? Do they know what's going on? Well, based on what uh, Kevin Garrett went through, um, in the case of Spaver, he doesn't uh, know Chinese. He's a Korean speaker, which, you know, makes the idea that he was a spy all the more unlikely. <laughs> he can't even speak the language of the place he's supposed to be spying on. 
um, they do provide interpreters. They're not very good, you know. So, not that it matters that much, as he has no opportunity to uh, to make any kind of defense. He's not allowed to consult with the lawyer that the Chinese regime has provided. And if the lawyer did, in fact, mount any vigorous defense, the lawyer would get into trouble. That's how the Chinese system works. So, um, you know, he was there. Uh, He probably doesn't really know what happened. And I think more seriously from the Canadian point of view is the Chinese violated international law by not allowing us any consular access to Mr. Spavor before the proceeding, which, you know, is outrageous because international law should take precedent over domestic laws and practices. That's why you sign these international agreements. And it really makes one wonder what sort of shape uh, Michael's favor is after presumably intensified interrogation leading up to the trial, because they hope he'll make some kind of false confession, I think. And, of course, he's living in crowded, unhygienic facilities in a prison at a time of pandemic. So I would have felt a lot more assured if the Chinese government had not denied our deputy head of mission, Jim Nichol, who traveled up to Dandong, especially for this, any opportunity to see Mr. Spader whatsoever. And is there any reason to think anything will be any different on Monday? I don't think so. You know, I think it'll be the same denial of consular access, um, no one in the courtroom to, to monitor as is required under diplomatic protocols. You know, there should be a diplomat there to see that the Canadian is getting due process of law, which, of course, they aren't. And uh, then he goes back to prison again, and I think, basically, they stay in prison for as long as the Chinese government thinks that this hostage diplomacy is serving interest, their interest in Canada if it keeps our government cowed from doing anything to respond to China's outrages against the norms of international diplomacy and, and simple human de- decency. What about our allies, specifically uh, the United States? President Biden has taken a position on this. There were the meetings between or meetings between uh, diplomats from the U.S. and China in Alaska. Any progress there? Well, I think, um, you know, this is the first meeting between senior officials of the Biden administration and their Chinese counterparts. So they had the Secretary of State, um, Anthony Blinken and the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan sitting together in a conference room, which is unusual. You know, normally you don't get the two of them. And the Chinese counterparts, Wang Yi, who you know we know from bad experiences with him and Stefan Dion a few years ago, and uh, Yang Jiechi, a senior um, official in in Chinese foreign policy, uh, met with them. Um, I think there is a difference between Mr. Biden's approach and Mr. Trump's approach, which is that Mr. Trump wanted to do everything bilateral, simply, you know, China-U.S. mano a mano, whereas Biden, I think, appreciates that the only way that we can get some kind of meaningful um, pressure on the Chinese government is if all the like-minded allies combine to uh, act in a concerted way. So, you know, he's telling the Chinese that if you want relations better with the United States, then you stop with your economic and diplomatic coercion of Australia, because we're not going to we're not going to deal with you unless you treat our allies in a in a reasonable kind of way. And so that applies to a lesser extent to Canada. But you know, Canada, as we've been discussing, has not been as firm in defending Canadian values and interests as Australia has, and. You know, and we have nothing on the table for this Culver against Favor thing, 
because we didn't do anything to China, you know, to indicate to China our dissatisfaction in any form of of response or, or retaliation. So we have nothing to negotiate with China to get Kovrig and Saber back. We're entirely dependent on the goodwill of the United States to try and, and strike some deal that will bring them back to their families here in Canada. What can we do, Charles, or what could we have done? Because certainly the Prime Minister is has some pretty harsh language for uh, China now. We can see, certainly see relations between the two countries heating up even more. Um, should we have done more? I know you're quoted as saying that. What could we have done? You know, I mean, I certainly don't want to give the impression that the brutal incarceration of Covert and Saver is anything due to Canada. You know, this is entirely on the heads of the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party in Beijing. But, you know, as we've discussed on this program a number of times, I feel that our policy of quiet diplomacy, um, you know, not engaging in any substantive measures that would um, cause the Chinese government to, to feel any pain as a result of their action and relying on, you know, reasoned arguments and goodwill on the part of the Chinese regime to bring them around to the idea that really they should be releasing Kovrigan's favor because their only crime is being Canadian at the wrong place and the wrong time. You know, that has not worked. We're 830 days into this. There's no progress towards release, and the Chinese won't even give us proper consular access to our citizens. So, you know, I think in retrospect, if we had engaged in some retaliatory measures towards China, um, sanctions against the Chinese officials who we know are complicit in um, these human rights abuses, who have major assets and family here in Canada, that would have been good. We could have clamped down on, on Chinese imports into Canada by inspecting more strictly for fentanyl because the Chinese have, you know, took our money to say that they would be investigating the fentanyl triad connection with Canada and then fentanyl, as we know, is still flowing in, uh, you know, we could we could be saying that um, we're not going to the Olympics because you're engaging in uh, genocide. You know, there are a lot of things that, that, that we could do to get the Chinese government's attention and give them a strong message that uh, taking Canadians as hostage and treating them brutally to try and pressure our government to, to um, you know, rule in favor of China in, a, in an extradition case is just not but, going to work. But, we but you know, Charles, you know, Charles, you know, retaliatory action, and again, there's lots of people who will debate that, whether what we can do, what we can't do, but, you know, you're talking about some sort of retaliatory action. That's one thing. But let alone that, we're just continuing on as if it's business as usual. Uh, there's still lots of other stuff going on, and it's business as usual. Uh, you know, whether it's, uh, uh, like you said, the Olympics, whether it's uh, it's a technical discussion, whether it's our educational facilities, whether it's buying a vaccine with a Chinese company. Oh, he still keeps going on as if it's business as usual, let alone any sort of retaliation. Yeah, I mean, the Chinese say... Um, you know, seek common ground and set aside differences. So Canada talks about, well, we need to, you know, do more trade with China. We need to cooperate on climate change. We need to deal with them on environmental issues. You know, those are common ground. But China does not set aside differences. You know, they're not setting aside the fact that they just have to wait and see what's going to happen to Meng Wanzhou. They've been engaging in, you know, spurious violation of $3 billion a year of export of 
canola seeds to China, the hostage diplomacy, and any number of outrages, while Canada just sits passively by. And I think that there are, you know, considerable constituencies within the Canadian business and corporate elite who hope that we can continue to do profitable business with China and get the benefits that China offers to people that that uh, play along with their propaganda line. And, you know, Canadians, most Canadians, just don't think that this is uh, the way our government should be responding to what China's doing. And when the whole cabinet abstained on the unanimous notion to condemn China for c- committing crimes of genocide, exactly what message are we sending to Beijing? It's certainly not the message I want to send to Beijing. Charles Burton, Senior Fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. As always, Charles, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. And to you too. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in John Iveson, journalist with the National Post. And uh, John's latest column is vaccine supply still fragile, but external threat, uh, existential threat still uh, to the liberal government has passed. I screwed that up. Vaccine supply still fragile, but existential threat to liberal government has passed. That is the latest. But uh, I I, uh, saw a tweet of John's uh, earlier on in the week, and this is what really sort of uh, stood out for me. And the tweet was uh, a lot of people saying they feel politically homeless. I found that fascinating. Let's bring in John Iveson, journalist with the National Post. John, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. So, uh, as I said, I was just uh, flipping around, and there you were, uh, lots of people saying they feel politically ho- uh, homeless, and this struck a chord with me. Uh, it, wh- explain. What are your thoughts? Well, the, 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 the origin of it, I guess, was that I was writing about um, uh, Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole, and the fact that the O'Toole version of the Conservative Party did not want one of the party's co-founders running as a candidate. A charge, I should say, that they deny, but I'm uh, satisfied in the truth of it. Um, and so, you know, I started musing about the, the idea that here's a Conservative Party that that is still too extreme or socially conservative or uh, not environmentally friendly enough, not progressive enough for many people. Um, maybe even many of the, the, the old red Tories. And at the same time, you've got a, a Liberal Party that seems to try to outdo the, the NDP when it comes to progressiveness. And so it's mm-hmm. too, in inverted commas, woke for many people. <clears throat> you know, and, and you know, the, the old um, stuck-in-the-middle-of-you line, clowns on the left of me and jokers on the right. Yeah, I just put this line uh, question out, you know, do, do people feel politically homeless? And there was a flood of response. I mean, you know... I think 150,000 people read the tweet and wow. 10,000 10, responded, uh, which is massive response rate for, for any tweet. So there obviously is a kind of built-up feeling among a lot of people that, that the parties out there do not rep- represent the views that they hold. 
You know, I, 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 we've had this discussion on this show a bazillion times, and I probably had it with you, John, that, you know, and I've said this for years, even going back to the provincial election here in Ontario, the victory will be won in the center. And, you know, I'm a guy in my 50s. I remember the Conservatives were a bit to the right, the Liberals were a little to the left, and then the NDP was, you know, left beyond that. Now, as you've mentioned, it appears uh, the Conservatives are firmly on the right, the, uh, the Liberals are now eating the lunch of the NDP, which, you know, are even more so to the left. And there's this gaping hole in the middle that no, that, that doesn't seem to be getting any attention uh, whatsoever. And still we're listening to the fringes and letting that dictate the narrative. How is that happening? Well, I guess, <clears throat> I mean, when you're in the, the sort of Internet age and the, the social media age, um you know, to some extent, social media is an echo chamber chamber that rewards polarization. You know, you get yeah. most times you, when you get a lot of response on, on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, you've said something kind of outrageous. And I think that to get attention in that environment, uh, you've got to be polarizing to some extent. Yeah, yet, you know, and we saw that in the States, but yet we've just seen Joe Biden elected who's probably the most moderate president since Bush Sr. or Clinton. So... You know, could could Canadian politics come back to the centre? I, I think they could do. I, I don't think people necessarily think in spectral terms. They don't think of a, a left and right wing, but they do. They do uh, identify with certain values. And you know, I remember when I was writing the, the Trudeau book, a lot of the some of the Liberal MPs I was talking to were kind of fed up, and they were they were with Justin Trudeau, and they were finding on the doorsteps that people, you know, I wish he didn't apologize so much. I wish he just concentrated on jobs and the economy. Um, you know, clearly on the conservative side, there are a lot of conservatives who wish that uh, the party was more responsive on uh, things like climate change and didn't bang on so much about abortion. So it's not so much that I think that people have got a, you know, I mean, the number of party uh Party membership holding, you know, people party members is is not great. You know, I mean, it's not a huge number, so I don't think people are really hankering to be part of a political party. But um, but I do think that they wish that the parties that are out there reflected their views a little bit more. It amazes me that those parties are not listening, uh, watching, reading what you are talking about. You know, you just mentioned, and, and again, I, I think you hit the nail right on the head, the extremes have got more exposure because of the Internet, and it just attracts that sort of thing. But that being said, look at the attention your tweet got for going right down the center. Yeah, I th- but I think that there are, you know, there are good electoral reasons why uh, the Liberals are clinging to the NDP, for example. I mean, if, if so a lot of uh, social Democrats can look, you know, they, they maybe vote Liberal instead of NDP. They'll think that the Liberals are the, are the the true face, or if not the true face of social democracy, at least they're a, a vague facsimile. And for the Liberals, if they can dominate on the left, they don't need to get votes in the middle or the right. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that there, there are disgruntled what you might call business liberals or or blue liberals who could be persuaded by a more moderate conservative party but when those people look at what's what's existed under harper particularly under Shear, 
and and even still under O'Toole, they can't get behind that. So, you know, until the Conservative Party and 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 the, I think O'Toole is trying to do that to an extent. He's trying to have a more um, mainstream environmental policy, but obviously he has resistance to that from some of his Western caucus, some of his uh, Western members and donors. So, you know, it's hard to move the centre of gravity of the Conservative Party, but until that happens, I don't think there's any great incentive for the Liberals to move back to the centre. Is it really uh, a case of determining what the policy is or just getting that information out? Because it seems that the opposition for decades has been able to dictate what the Conservative Party is. I mean, my goodness, haven't we put the whole abortion debate? Didn't we put that to bed decades ago? Yet it still seems to keep rearing its ugly head because an extremist is talking about it. So, you know, I I agree with you. The, The Conservatives have done nothing to put their best foot forward here. Yeah, well, I mean, O'Toole has tried to bring in, I mean, he's, he's, the official policy is net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Um, and they're talking about some form of carbon pricing, which is, you know, I think people are in this day and age now aware about climate change. The, the climate debate has come off the streets. It's now in the living room. And people, most people want, and I say most people advisedly, I mean, it's, it's going to be hard for anybody to get elected as a government without having a, a policy that, aims to reduce carbon emissions in a substantial way and not just in a kind of uh, talking the talk and then not actually walking the walk. So, um, yeah, the Conservative Party is is trying, I think, to do some of that work, but it's but it's hard and it's not... Uh, and, and I don't think O'Toole has helped himself by falling out with McKay and the McKay wing of the party. I mean, if you're going to try and move your the centre of gravity gravity of your party you need everybody behind that effort and he's he at the moment through his because of his own devices creating discord where none existed has uh, marginalized and purged many of the people he needs to support he needs so do you think as a result of this, and again, going back to your column, uh, which is uh, vac- a vaccine supply still fragile, but existential threat to liberal government has passed. Do you think if there is an election, spring, fall, what have you, that uh, people will forget what's happened from January, April, May, whenever uh, they'll forget about that and, and, and just move on with the liberals again? Well, that seems to be what the polls are suggesting. There's a new, a new poll out today from Abacus, which which essentially says that people feel that things are moving in the right direction. I mean, you know, I, I tweeted again this morning, I've got eight friends around the world from my hometown in Dumfries in Scotland, and four of them in the UK have had the vaccine. Uh, one in Texas got the vaccine today. Mm. One in Hong Kong is getting it next week. And it's really only the, the guy in uh, in Sydney, Australia, and, and myself who haven't. So when you look internationally, people and people have got relatives in the States, people have got yeah. relatives in, the, in Europe, they can see that people that that uh, distribution is far ahead of where we are here. So you know, I think that that still weighs on the Liberal government a little bit. But um, at least now, vaccine is flowing in in uh, measurable quantities, and and people can see the end of the tunnel. I mean, it does look like we're going to have enough vaccine by the end of June to give everybody at least one shot, if there are no production disasters or export controls from Europe or from the US um, it then falls in the provinces obviously uh, to get that vaccine in people's arms 
and they need to be going twice as fast as they're going at the moment. But I think, by and large, the Liberals will look at this and think, look, we're, we're pretty well set up. Let's, uh, let's plan for an election, probably in the fall, just after people come back from whatever kind of vacation they're going to have, probably have been vaccinated, probably a little bit more optimistic, and much of this stuff will have gone away by then. Many elections are decided uh, not so many, not so much when there is a better candidate, but people are just tired of the current candidate. Will we see that here? Yeah, well, there's another poll. Uh, actually, I think it was the same abacus poll I was reading today that uh, the time for change number it really needs to get up to sixty, seventy percent before an incumbent government is worried, and in this case, it was twenty, thirty percent. So there is no great sense. In fact, there's even less of a sense of time for change than there was before the last election in 2019. So at this stage, unless uh, O'Toole does something quite dramatic, the conditions are really not there for him. So uh, at the end of the day, again, as you've said, there's people that have friends in other parts of the world seeing them get vaccinated uh, and such. Uh, You think Canadians will be fine with that? It was interesting. We were talking earlier on. There was a reporter on the news last night and, and her... Her, her headline or how she started her report was the U.S. finally uh, sharing its vaccine, which I thought was a very odd way of looking at it. And, and it's as if Canadians are just expecting others to give to them before they give to their own countries and, and their own citizens. And if they don't do that, they're not sharing. They're not being, you know, and I can see how that, uh, that may, that may, uh, fly with, with an underdeveloped nation who's, who doesn't have the ability, but we're just a nation who, who didn't make a right decision way back when. So are, are you surprised that can- Canadians are okay with all of this? Well, the thing is, the, the comparison against, um, the U.S. and the U.K. is not a, not a good one for Canada not a good one for the government. But they are outliers when it comes to how fast they're going in vaccinating the people. I mean, I think the U.S. is uh, is done about a third of the country, or, or 20% of the country. The U.K. is at about a third. Um, and that's because they have their own vaccine supply. They make it there. Yeah. And, and, they've, and they've stipulated that it's not leaving the country until um, their population is vaccinated. And I think just about every... Most countries would do that. It's kind of remarkable to me that we're getting vaccine from Europe when the Europeans are not uh, are, are short of vaccine. And it it is still a worry that the European Union could turn around and say, right, we're not exporting any more vaccine until Europeans have been vaccinated. You know, all of our Pfizer and Moderna vaccine is coming from from Europe, from Belgium and Switzerland. Yeah. Um, it makes you wonder what kind of deals are going on there. And I was just well, reading the other. I was just reading the other day, John, that um, that that Europe's getting quite upset, and that if other countries start passing them, that's exactly what will happen. Right, and and um, I mean that was aimed at the UK, which has has far passed them, far surpassed them. But but it could equally apply to Canada. We keep getting told that that Canada is going to be okay, but I, I, it remains to be seen. And the US is pretty much off all vaccine coming, although the, the Biden administration has just granted us 1.5 million doses of AstraZeneca in the meantime, and then we'll get the rest of it later on, probably after all the Americans have been vaccinated. And they're going great guns. I mean, they could be they could be finished by, by the end of May. Mm-hmm. So 
you know, we are going to be behind America and we're going to be behind uh, the UK. But when you compare compare us to most other countries, it's not quite as egregious the gap. And I think if as as long as Canadians are able to get some kind of vaccine by you know into into the summer, there will not be uh, mutiny in the ranks. I don't think. It was interesting. I, I remember, uh, obviously, we've been doing this for a year now, but earlier on, much earlier on, uh, say maybe uh, before the holidays, before Christmas, uh, saying on air that watching U.S. news coverage was like watching Canadian coverage six months ago. They were just so far behind in what they were saying and what they were acknowledging and what they were doing. And now you listen to those same newscasts. It's the opposite. It seems like we are weeks or months behind. Yeah, well, I mean, both, well, we, we're talking about the U.S. and the U.K. being far ahead of us in vaccination terms, but they were—they both had terrible COVID experiences. Yeah, far, far higher death rates. Yeah, I mean, I think if our—if we'd had the American death rate, uh, we would have seen somewhere around a hundred thousand Canadians dying, as opposed yeah. to twenty-two. Um, so, you know, the question for those countries will—will—will will, will that performance be forgotten? I mean, obviously, the Americans have gone through an election; the British have not. Uh, will will Boris Johnson's terrible COVID performance be forgiven because they managed to get the uh, the vaccine solution right? We've had kind of the inverse where we've had a, a relatively good COVID compared to other countries and then uh, not such a great vaccine rollout. It's amazing how those others have gone from zero to 100 almost overnight. Yeah, and, and it remains to be seen whether we just haven't had the vaccine supply. But yeah, yeah. You know, yesterday was a record day. Uh, or actually, I think it was Wednesday was a record day of 138,000 people vaccinated uh, in provinces and territories. We need to get to 300,000 a day to to reach our targets. And, you know, we're starting to see some initiatives being taken. For example, corporations being encouraged in Quebec to vaccinate their workforce. You know, if you're a big yeah. uh, employer with a big plant, then you hand out the vaccine, we'll give it to you and you somehow and you distribute it to your workforce. I think we're going to start to see pharmacies involved far more than they've been. There's going to be innovative ways that the provinces start to roll this out because, you know, at the moment, it's just it's not not quick enough. And, you know, while vaccine supply is the federal issue, vaccine distribution is the provincial issue. And the prov- mm-hmm. provinces do not want to be um, they want to point the finger at the Fed saying we don't have enough vaccine. They don't want to be the Fed's pointing the finger at them and saying, we gave you the vaccine and you haven't yeah. been able to distribute it. Are you concerned, John, last question, are you concerned about hesitancy award around the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine? Obviously, we're getting those doses from the, the stockpile in uh, in America once that deal is done. Uh, it, it will be approved there, but not until April. And from what I've heard from the professors I've talked to, it's it just hasn't been needed because they have the other. Uh, so obviously, uh, if it's sitting there stockpiled, they might as well bring it out to, to uh, other countries and such. But are you concerned that some may look at this and go, well, wait a sec, what's going on here? And this isn't as good as the other two. Well, I think there is an issue there. Uh, I mean, clearly, some of these European countries have, have stopped distributing it, although some of them have started have started yeah. back up again. Um, you know, there's nothing conclusive to suggest it, that it leads to blood clotting. Um, there are other concerns. I mean, uh, Jason Kenney was saying that Albertans should have a choice because... Some of these vaccines, AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson, were derived from, a, from an aborted fetus 52 years ago. 
Oh, which seems my. to be a ludicrous argument because you're then muddying the waters and walking all over this line that oh, you know, the best vaccine you get is the one that is offered first. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, my sister's had AstraZeneca in in the UK. Um, people are taking it there. The studies are showing, there was a study in Scotland that showed that it's even more effective after you've had two doses uh, protecting against hospitalisation and death than the Moderna vaccine. Um so, you know, the efficacy of it, I think, is, is, is in the 90s after you've had two jabs, um, 60s after one jab. So, you know, I think people should just ex- trust their, their, the health professionals who are looking at this. There are studies ongoing. At the moment, this thing is recommended for everybody. They, they've recommended it for, even for people over 65, even though the, the Health Canada study was pretty low on the number of over 65 that tested it on. But I think, you know, is it a better option than, than getting COVID and perhaps ending up in hospital or dying? Absolutely. There you go. John Iveson with us, journalist uh, with the National Post. Uh, in the latest article, John Iveson, vaccine supply is still fragile, but existential threat to liberal government has passed. John, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well and have a great weekend. And to you, Scott. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.